0: Welcome to our new podcast series, Encircled in the Arms of His Love, the Book of Mormon and the Temple. I'm Sam and your host. Our teacher is Dr. Breck England. This year, as members of the church study the Book of Mormon together, we want to invite you to look at the Book of Mormon through the lens of the temple. We hope that our podcast series this year will help you connect the temple to the book, and vice versa.
1: Yes, the purpose of this podcast and the book that comes out of it, which will come out uh, later, is to change our whole perspective on the Book of Mormon. Latter-day Saints know how important the temple is, and it's central to all our, our hopes and our, and our testimonies. The temple is the house of the atonement. Only in the temple do we finally get to embrace and become at one with the Savior, and that's what atonement means to be encircled in the arms of his love, as the Book of Mormon says. Now, the Book of Mormon is pretty silent about uh, the temple, but there's a reason for that. It's the book of instructions that leads us to the temple. But at the same time, if you look under the hood, the Book of Mormon, you see the temple everywhere. And I say that the key to understanding The Book of Mormon
0: is the temple. Okay, let's turn that key a little more and find out more of what's inside. The title of episode three is Our Days of Tribulation. Right.
1: In the temple, we learn that we've been sent into this world to be tested. Quote, we will prove them now herewith, the Lord says, meaning... Uh, we'll test them against the materials of this earth to see what they're made of, right? In Hebrew, the word uh, for um, trial is bachan, which means to be to be tried or tested. And as when David says in, um, in First Chronicles twenty nine seventeen, he says, the Lord tries the heart, uh, bachan chaleb, which means he tries the heart. And Job says, when the Lord has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Mm. That's in Job twenty-five or 23, verse 10. So how do we get tried? How does, how does this Bachan apply to us? Well, uh, the test comes to us through tribulation. The Hebrew word for tribulation is tzarach, which means tight times. Okay, you know what it, Means to be in a tight plot, a yeah. tight place, a tight, tight spot. spot. Yeah. We're in a tight spot. We're in a tight spot. Bert. <laughs> yeah. This is
0: like in the in the spirit of Brother yeah. We're in a tight spot. We're in a tight spot.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know what it means to go through a tight time. Yeah, I'm sure you. I do. You've told me. So in Second Nephi two and one, uh, Lehi refers to these days as the days of my tribulation in the wilderness. And that's. Uh, Just another way of saying this is our test, okay? We're all being tested. We're all in the midst of our days of tribulation in the wilderness. That's what mortal life is all about. Right. It's a time of tribulation. Now in the temple, a major lesson we learn is that Adam and Eve have to go through a time of tzara, a time of bachan. A time of proving—that is a, a tribulation time, a time of testing and trying in, in a dreary world. Okay, dreary celestial world. This world is the arena of our testing. In your experience, what has the testing ground been like
0: for you? So, um, it's easy for me to take topics like this <laughs> and to put sports analogies in them. Please. So, uh, when if you if you want great victories and you want great celebrations, and great achievement. The way you get to those is in the weight room, is running, is exercising, is is through the trial of working out and preparing for the event. As a young athlete many years ago, I grew to love the grind of the weight room because that's where I learned that the heavier the weight, the stronger I got. That's where I learned in doing workouts with my coaches and my teammates taking us to the brink of near physical exhaustion and then pushing us past that Mm. that's where i learned when it really mattered on the field in front of you know a hundred thousand people that's when you performed at your best Mm. things slowed down you were prepared you didn't even hesitate you just did it because you had worked so hard for so long through so much tribulation. It just made you better. Yeah. So And you enjoyed that. I I still do. Like I I love it to this day. It's one of the things I'm most proud of. Yeah.
1: You, I love you, I learned you, to love that. Kind you of love stuff. the pain and the suffering. There's a word for people like you. I'm masochist. a masochist. Yeah. Ma- yeah. yeah, I'm a masochist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I guess we all have to learn that. Yeah. Well, in First Nephi, um, the testing ground is the desert, right? Right. That's his uh, workout room, in a sense. Eight years of wandering in the desert. They got hungry, they got tired, they fought with each other. Things came close to falling apart, right? Right. When all the bows got broken, right, um, right. the girl's father died. Uh, In a place called Nahum, which in Hebrew means uh, mourning or comfort, um, depending on the context. They had babies, they ate raw meat. They couldn't even make fire for fear of attracting unwanted attention. So it was probably deadly hot sometimes and freezing cold other times. Right, right. And it must have been miserable much of the time. As far as... The calculations go; it probably averaged only about a mile a day, wow, which must have been unbelievably tedious and discouraging. Right? And Nephi says, "quote We did wade through much affliction," unquote, which right. is one a way of saying we had an absolute crappy time.
0: Yeah, we had a hard we had a hard, <laughs> hard go. You know, yeah, this was yeah. a hard drive.
1: Right, and that's for sure. And Laman and Lemuel, of course, got fed up over and over again, right? They were ready to call it off. Call it all off, go back to Jerusalem. But Nephi tried to get them to remember the purpose of it all. Could you uh, read these verses from First Nephi 17?
0: Do you believe that our fathers, who were the children of Israel, would have been led out of the hands of the Egyptians if they had not hearkened unto the word of the Lord? Now ye know that Moses was commanded of the Lord to do that great work. And you know that by his word, the waters of the Red Sea were divided and they passed through on dry ground.
1: So why is Nephi lecturing his brothers about using this story?
0: Well, this is part of their culture. And he's trying to go into a believable culture and bring it forward to try to connect with them somehow so that they can he can help them ignite some kind of desire or purpose to what they're doing. That, that would be my first take. I mean, right. I don't
1: know. And, 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 and um, he, he was putting them, he was putting them in the picture. That is, he was helping them understand they were in the same situation. Right. He was
0: giving them a as, common yeah, common yeah, kind of ground. Yep.
1: Yeah. It's the children of Israel who were in, in the Exodus. Right. Uh, Nephi saw the whole purpose of this tribulation in the desert was to test and try them just like the children of Israel were tested and tried. It's the same story, right? right. Uh, Adam and Eve were the first to be tested and tried uh, in the lone and dreary world. And uh, the Lord made a covenant with them that he would lead them across this desert of mortality to a promised land which is symbolic of exaltation in his kingdom. And it's the same story with the exodus of Israel and uh, the same story with the family of Lehi. And it's the same story with us, isn't it? Yeah.
0: One of the great comforts I've had in my life is when I was a kid, I loved movies like Rocky, Brian's song. I really resonated with sports movies, you know, whatever. But it was the, if if Rocky could do it, I could do it, right? You know, if so and so could do it, I could do it. And you know, Star Wars, if I could just have the force, you know, you know, I could I could do these great things. And I found myself as a youngster being inspired by story. Believable stories where you face insurmountable odds and you win anyway, much like The Odyssey. You know, Homer's Odyssey that I've just finished reading. So, um, yeah, same thing. Mm-hmm. You, it's like it's the idea of facing A lot of challenges, and no one thinking you can do it, and you do it anyway. But other people have done it before you, so you can do it. So there's a lot of, um, I don't know, it seems like it built my faith when I would expose myself to that kind of stuff.
1: And in the case of uh, Nephi, he's got help. Right. (laughs) Divine help. He's got divine help. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. This is the story that's told in the temple. Right. That's what I want everybody to see, is that Adam and Eve... Exodus in the desert, Nephi's family, Lehi's family in the desert. This is all type and shadow of our own life, of our own mortal life. We all have to cross the desert. But the Lord doesn't abandon Adam and Eve uh, or the children of Israel or the family of Lehi or us in the desert. It, it's it's true, that the journey through mortality can be bleak and, and dreary. But the Lord is always watching. He's got his eye on us. He's guiding and blessing us with his, uh, what Nephi calls his tender mercies. Could you read these verses from First Nephi 17?
0: Ye also know that they were fed with manna in the wilderness, yea, and ye also know that Moses smote the rock and there came forth water that the children of Israel might quench their thirst. The Lord their God leading them by day and giving light unto them by night and doing all things for them which were expedient. Right, okay, so they were never alone. Right.
1: Um, interestingly enough, the Lord gave them bread from heaven. Right. And he gave them water and... That's what we get in the sacrament. Yeah, that's true. That's very interesting. Very cool. So here they go on uh, the exodus through the desert toward the promised land. They're thirsty. They're hungry. And they get bread and water. We get spiritual bread and water. Well, we get actual bread and water. But for us, it is a spiritual token. It's a token of God's tender mercy. Which right. is the atonement, right? Right, right? So, these are tender mercies, which um, is one of Lehi and Nephi's favorite phrases from the Psalms. One of those tender mercies was um, the strange instrument that Lehi found outside his tent door, which he called the ball—the round ball of curious workmanship—and it was of fine brass, and and within the ball were two spindles. Uh, one pointed the way, and, and it says, "Quote, and the one pointed the way whither we should go into the wilderness." I assume the other spindle pointed backwards, <laughs> so so you'd have How'd a yeah, you have a a <clears throat> lot uh, sort of like a here's here's the way forward, and that was the way backwards. So notice that the ball appears on the morning they start their journey into the desert. Right uh, up till now, Nephi says, um, "Quote." Um, My father had fulfilled all the commandments the Lord had given him, right? Up to that point, he had done everything he'd been asked to do. So what does it teach us that he, Lehi, gets the director
0: now as they're about to? I think it teaches us if we remain faithful and do our part, that at the very moment that we need it, we'll get the direction.
1: Oh, I think that's absolutely right. I yeah. think that's what we're supposed to get here. Right, right. I do. Lehi Whatever. gets up in the morning. He knows the Lord wants him to start today. You're, okay. Get on your way. Right. He gets up in the morning, and I don't know. He's probably maybe he spent the night saying to himself, "Where, you know, where are we going <laughs> to <Okay>. go?" <laughs> and he steps <laughs> out of his tent, and there's the answer, right there, which he did not expect, right. because it says he was astonished. Right, right. It, it, surprise! What is this thing? Right. And so, later in the Book of Mormon, uh, we learn this thing is called a liahona, which probably means something like, uh, to the place of Jehovah. Mm, okay. Uh, this is according to an LDS language scholar named uh, Jonathan Kersey, who's written some really, really uh, carefully researched stuff on this. Uh, in Hebrew, the word yahoo is short for Jehovah or Yahweh. And if you put the preposition le in front of it, l you get liyahu, which means something like to Jehovah. It could also mean from Jehovah, <laughs> depending right, on right. the context. Right, so, right, right. means to Jehovah. So it's kind of like a sign to Salt Lake. You know, it says to Jehovah.
0: Right, right.
1: Now, this is interesting to me. It doesn't say to America or to Bountiful or to, it says to Jehovah. This is the way to Jehovah then you add the word ona which in hebrew meant something like direction or motion to a certain place uh-huh. and then according to kirsi you get this liahona liahona which meant in the direction of or to the place of jehovah okay so there are two pointers in the ball and one is pointing forward it's pointing to what
0: jehovah yes to jehovah yes
1: Okay, it doesn't point only to a certain direction or a promised land. It points to the Lord, Jesus Christ. Wow, this is cool. Who is Jehovah. And what is the dwelling of Jehovah on the earth? The temple. Right. Right. Now, the place of Yahweh, or the place of Jehovah, would be a temple, wouldn't it? Right, it would be. So the words, to Jehovah, that's interesting because there are two needles, one pointing backwards to the temple in Jerusalem. So from Jehovah, another pointing forward to the place of Jehovah in the promised land. So you get, we're coming from him and to him, okay? We don't get off that path, all right? We're on that path, and we've done everything that he's asked us to do, so we're coming from him, and we're also going to him, okay? Very cool. Uh, I think this is a really interesting idea. We'll see that there there will be a place of Jehovah in the Promised Land because just about the first thing Nephi builds in the Promised Land is a temple. Right. So the liahona is an instrument. I think it's from yahona, yahona. That's probably how you say mm-hmm. uh, It is an instrument that points us where? It, to the temple. Right. Okay. So could, could you read for us Alma chapter 37, verse 45?
0: Just as surely as this director did bring our fathers, by following its course, to the promised land. So shall the words of Christ, if we follow their course, carry us beyond this veil of sorrow into a far better land of promise. Okay, so here we go
1: with Adam and Eve into this veil of sorrow. It's an interesting expression. That's, that is that um, is just another... Just another way of saying it, this world, right? right? This veil of sorrow. Right. Um, but we get lots of help along the way, in, in the temple, what kind of help do Adam and Eve get to cross the veil of sorrow? Well, they get true messengers, right? Right, right. who show up every once in a while, right, and give them direction, give them further. Uh, light knowledge, give, give them the words of Christ. And for us, the words of Christ are our liahona. They are the true tender mercies for us, to give us direction to get through the great tribulation of our days in the wilderness, which is Lehi's term, right? Mm-hmm. Notice that Nephi says the liahona guides us through the more fertile parts of the land. Now, I have been to Saudi Arabia and I, and I challenge you to find a fertile place. <laughs> a fertile place. <laughs> yeah, that's true. However, on the east, on on the, on the extreme west coast of Saudi Arabia, which runs along the Red Sea, is more mountainous, and there are valleys in that in that mountainous region it's called the Isir, and um, that's where Mecca is and Medina. And okay. as you go, to, as you as you travel down along the coast of the Red Sea, you will be traveling through mountain valleys, which could be uh, more fertile. Right. And so the the, the the Liahona is in a sense providing them the tender mercy of keeping them in land that they can survive in. Right, right. Because okay. if you went uh, say a hundred miles to the to the east, there's nothing there but sand, literally. Right. Nothing. Right. Okay. So now to me the global shape of the Liahona is interesting. The ancients knew that the world was round. A lot of us you know they thought it was flat. Well actually At that time, they knew it was round. Uh, The the astronomers of Babylon, Greece, they knew that. They were not fools. Mm -hmm. A globe is one of the most ancient scientific instruments. Its history goes back literally thousands of years. Mm. Sumerians used globes, Babylonians did, Egyptians did. It represented to them a directional tool. It represented for uh, some the, the circular night sky full of circling stars in ancient times they used to navigate, right? I mean, there's an interesting connection to the ancient circular orb that Middle Eastern kings held in their hands. In ancient Babylon, the circle or orb held in the hand represented the world. And and we have statues of of Roman emperors holding the orb that stood for their dominion over the whole known world, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And an early Christian art shows Jesus holding an orb in his hand to symbolize his royal power over the universe. So, so this this orb represents a kind of compass. It represents the night sky. It represents um, the world. It represents the universe. It's it's a kind of a universal symbol that uh, represents all of God's creation and. Of course, words would appear on it that would give them direction. So Lehi's family uses this this instrument to guide them to a promised land, which they called Bountiful. It was on the, some of our LDS scholars believe that it's a fertile seacoast area on the south shore of the Arabian Peninsula. The Lehites at the time, as they arrived there, they were very happy. They thought, this is our goal. This is our promised land. Right, right. Um, it's a nice place. There's groves of trees. There's timber. There's water. There, there, there are animals. There's a beehive, beehives everywhere. It's a nice place. Right here we are. Okay, we've arrived. This is our Eden. This is our. But now Nephi <laughs> surprises them and say, um, "Now we're going to build a ship to make an even more difficult journey." So, he recognizes that he needs even more light and knowledge. And he says, if you will read 1 uh, Nephi 18
0: and 3. And I, Nephi, did go into the mount oft, and I did pray oft unto the Lord. Wherefore the Lord showed unto me great things. Okay, and that's what happens in the temple. Right. Just like Adam.
1: Right. Nephi gets a dose of further light and knowledge here. He gets shown, quote, great things, unquote, which we know, as we established in our earlier episodes, we know that this is a code phrase for those undisclosed mysteries of the temple. Right. Uh, In Hebrew, the gedolet u the the sort of thing that happens on a holy mountain. Right. Okay. Right. When there's no temple, you go to the top of the mountain. And what he learned there, he doesn't tell us. Right? Right. But when he uses that phrase, quote, great things, we know what he means. Right. So Nephi gets a further dose of light and knowledge to prepare him for the next stage of the great tribulation. And that's what happens with Adam and Eve when the messengers enlighten them further, right? Give them more light and knowledge so that they are prepared for the next phase of their tribulation, their test. We've had the land journey. Now we have to do the water journey. So there's two stages. And now the ball, the director, becomes really important because on the water you're really going to need a compass. This is going to be a trip of about 22,000 miles. Oh, wow. And at about 200 miles a day on average, which is average for a sailing ship of that era, not counting stops, that's going to be about 100 days. Yeah. Okay, so that's a long trip. Long trip. So let's, let's talk about the water journey for a minute. What does it represent? A sea voyage, the sea had tremendous symbolism for the ancient Middle East peoples. For them, the sea was a very fearful thing. Uh, one Hebrew word for the sea was tehom, and that word is related to the violent Babylonian sea monster god, uh, tchom I think I'm saying that right. Or Tiamat, which is another way of saying the same name. And Tiamat was the primordial sea dragon, the sea serpent that their god, Marduk, had to defeat in order to create the world. Clear back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, right back at the beginning of the Bible, we read that God had to subdue the Tehom, the monster of the deep. Okay, verse 2 says... uh, and the spirit hovered over the deep. Well, what that really, if you translate that correctly, is the spirit um, of God uh, did, did uh, battle with Techom, the, the monster of the deep, to begin the creation. You had to do this first. Now, I believe that the Techom was a symbol of the old serpent Lucifer. He's always figured in these ancient mythologies as a dragon or a serpent. Right, And Lucifer had to be controlled. He had to be confined in the war in heaven in order to fulfill God's plan, he had to do this. But in our mortal test, the Lord does give Lucifer some space, right? To try and entice us towards, essentially towards destruction. Right, right? He has to give us that space where there is no test. Okay. So we know that for the ancients of Nephi's time, the sea was, the ocean was Techom. It was Satan's territory. It was the source of all water. Um, and that was the underworld or the deep. We, in, in Genesis 1 2, it's the deep, but it's, the Hebrew word there is Techom, the, the monster of the deep. Now, in the Egyptian temple, right? So now, going over to Egypt, it's the same thing. The soul in order to get to heaven, the soul had to travel through the underworld on a boat, <laughs> which I think is really interesting. Uh-huh. Um, there's always a boat. And, and all along the way, the soul is being menaced and threatened by what? A serpent. Right. Okay, the serpent god in Egyptian is called Apophis. And um, Apophis is constantly threatening to destroy the soul as it goes on this, uh, on this voyage, okay, mm-hmm. on, on a ship. Mm-hmm. And the soul has to pass through many gates and give the key words to the sentinels in order to move forward. So this is all very, uh, very important stuff. It's very temple-oriented stuff. In all Middle Eastern temple rites, the soul has to travel through a dark and dreary waste, uh, constantly under threat from a great serpent, okay, mm-hmm in order to arrive at the land of promise, which is um, heaven, okay? Mm-hmm. And that's the situation in First Nephi 18. Uh, the family has to cross the, quote, great deep, unquote, as Nephi, Nephi calls it in, in uh, Second Nephi 420, he calls it the great deep. Uh, and, and if you're speaking Hebrew, you'd say this is the, the great Tehom, the Tehom Gadol, the the great deep. He had a name for it, Ereantum, but nobody knows what that means. So mm-hmm. uh, he says it means the many waters, but we don't know what Ereantum meant. It could have could have been uh, Egyptian. It could have been Northwest Semitic. We don't know exactly what that word meant. But if he's speaking Hebrew, he's calling it the Tahom Okay. Unfortunately, the Tehom has two very dangerous helpers, minions, <laughs> on the ship in the form of two guys, two guys named Laman and Lemuel. Okay. As we learn in the book of Revelation, remember right back in Revelation, the devil yeah. the devil always has two beastly servants. Right. Right? Two guys, two beasts. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they represent, uh, on the one hand, there's the beast... Um, that represents tyranny, mm-hmm. right? And the other beast that represents uh, false religion, right? False priest. Right. Both of whom are after the same thing, which is power. They want to rule the world, and they serve Lucifer, who is quote the so-called god of this world. He says, "I am the god of this world," right? And these two guys are my my uh, servants, the the tyrant and the false prophet. Okay. In Revelation, they're called the beast of the land and the beast of the sea. I remember, yeah. Ironically, Lehi himself, and this I find kind of strangely ironic, okay. Lehi himself associates Laman with land and Lemuel with water.
0: Yeah, he does, doesn't he?
1: Remember, uh, he names a valley after Laman and a river after Lemuel. Yeah. He wishes these associations would be good ones, but they are not. They turn out to be very bad ones. Right. Right. Okay. Now, here's something interesting. In Babylonian legend, the monster sea serpent Tiamat, or Tachom, okay, in Hebrew, gave birth to twins, get this, named Lachmu and Lachamu. Oh
0: my gosh, <laughs> I, I that's way too close. That's way,
1: that's way interesting. Yeah. And they also take the form of snakes. There are a couple of snakes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, and the legend says, quote, they were full of vitality. And often had rowdy gatherings, unquote. Mm. Mm. So it's fun when we when we read this about Laman and Lemuel in First Nephi 18.9.
0: Uh, Would you read it? Yeah, sure. And after we had been driven forth by the wind for the space of many days, behold, my brethren began to make themselves merry, insomuch that they began to dance and to sing, and to speak with much rudeness, yea, even that they did forget by what power they had been brought thither; yea, they were lifted up unto exceeding rudeness. So you see, they had rowdy parties on rowdy the ship. Rowdy party. They got a little merry, very a little rude. Yeah.
1: And, and Nephi wanted, to, of course, to rein in this all this vulgarity, all yeah, these right. these rude displays, this rowdiness, which he which you know, wasn't very respectful to right. the Lord or to his parents and. But what did they do? They got mad, and they um, read 18, 11,
0: and 12. Sure. Laman and Lemuel did take me and bind me with cords, and they did treat me with much harshness. Nevertheless, the Lord did suffer it that he might show forth his power unto the fulfilling of his word, which he had spoken concerning the wicked. And after they had bound me in so much that I could not move, the compass which had been prepared of the Lord did cease to work. So, okay, you have these two characters, Laman and
1: Lemuel, they are real people, right? but they are also symbolic. Okay. Uh, the Lachmu and the Lachamu of the Babylonians, um, these were the, the twin roisterers, the twin rowdy rowdies, the snakes who were the uh, offspring of the sea monster. I need to point out that, that one of them, in the legend, one of them was considered a female. Um, Lachamu was considered for few. But the names are astounding. Lachamu and Lachamu. I I, I just can't get away from that. How crazy (laughs) close it is. Okay. So these two two characters, Laman and Lemuel, they represent the twin powers of sea and land, the two beasts of Revelation, the tyrant and the false priest, the uh, instruments that Lucifer uses to spread his bloody rule all over the world, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, This is intriguing to me um the uh, the Semitic root Laman lmn uh, has the figurative meaning of a of a city or a marketplace uh, while well, the name Lemuel Lemuel means something like dedicated to God or a priest. So ironically, are these two characters uh, therefore representing the two powers of Earth that, that Satan uses to harass the posterity of Adam and Eve. What do you think? I
0: I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Now pe-
1: people will always say to me, "Okay, you read that into this. Now, do you think Nephi intended that? Intended us to get that meaning?" And I would say, "Well, I I can't read Nephi's mind, but this is what I get."
0: The correlation is uncanny. Yeah. It's, it's it's really interesting.
1: Yeah. So they 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 that the, the two characters they see Nephi as a threat to the power, they say, belongs to them, right? Right, As the elder brothers, they serve the God of this world. Remember, the God of this world is saying, I'm the one in charge here, this is my kingdom, and nobody gets to say what goes on here but me, right? And he's constantly asserting his power over the earth, which is, of course, fraudulent. Right, He has no power, okay? that we don't give him the two brothers say they have the right to rule it all belongs to them right it's the great day of power for them Mm. so they tie nephi to the mast with cords around his ankles and his wrists and a terrific storm breaks out that drives the ship backwards for three days Now that's important so who does nephi symbolize now the suffering Christ. Oh, that's
0: yeah, the, the suffering Christ. He's yeah. the savior.
1: He's, yeah. He's bound to the cross beam of the ship. Oh my gosh. And his wrists and ankles swell up with unbearable pain. Oh my
0: that just blew my mind, Breck.
1: So so this and this ordeal goes on for three days. Yeah. A symbolic period that foreshadows the three days of darkness that happen in third Nephi, right? Mm -hmm. After the crucifixion, and the three days the Savior was in the tomb. Right. So, my conclusion, Nephi's suffering is a token and foreshadowing and type of the atonement of Christ. Wow. And that's what I see there. Uh, And it is very, very real to me, okay? Now, here's a question for you. Why, Why would the Lord permit this particular catastrophe? This, this, Why would he permit this mess to take place on that ship? Let, oh. let, let, let's read what Nephi says in chapter 18, verse
0: 11. Laman and Lemuel did take me and bind me with cords, and they did treat me with much harshness. Nevertheless, the Lord did suffer it, that he might show forth his power. Under the fulfilling of his word, which he had spoken concerning the wicked.
1: So, why did the Lord allow Laman and Lemuel to bind
0: up Nephi? So that he could be delivered and he could show his power.
1: Right. So that the Lord could show who is the power. Right. Right. The power is him. He's the power. Right, right. right. These these two characters who say we're the power, it is our day of power, yeah. are, of course, frauds and, and just... Powerless in the right. face of Jehovah, who is truly in charge here. Right. He allows this so that he can show forth his power, but it is also a power of deliverance. Okay? So it was a test for Nephi, right? Will he endure it well? He does endure it well. Yeah, he did. And after that, there's smooth sailing, <laughs> which is interesting to me. Right. Know. I, I think we all have to pass through this great tribulation. Sometimes tribulation gets inflicted on us
0: right.
1: uh, by the so-called God of this world and his his minions, his 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 gangsters. Um, as in the case of Nephi and Laman and Lemuel, right. um, and we have to pass through storms, and these these represent the real trials and right. crises of our lives. Right.
0: Sometimes we do it to ourselves. Yes, yes. And we have trials because of our own yeah. mistakes and right. bad decisions.
1: In many, in, in many cases, yeah. And sometimes we get kicked in the head in other ways. Right. right, right. Isaiah says this. This is a great passage in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 30. The Lord shall show the lighting down of his arm with the indignation of his anger and with the flame of a devouring fire with scattering and tempest and hailstones. In other words, Nephi's situation, (laughs) okay. The Lord shows forth his power this way in order to test us and try us and also in order to punish the wicked at the same time, which I think is an interesting Mm -hmm. observation. They get pushed back, right? We get pushed back all the time. Right. Uh, and, and we have to start over again. Right? How many times have we been kicked in the head or pushed back? And golly, uh, we've lost ground. Right.
0: right. Many times in my life have yeah. I had to start over. Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You have to start over. <laughs> right. And do it again. Do right? it again, yeah. So we get pushed back. We have to start over. We get hungry and cold and scared like Lehi's family was. It could be physical, it could be spiritual hunger, spiritual coldness, spiritual fear. Uh, The Lord allows it. He allows all of it. And quote, listen to the language he uses. He quote, suffers it, that he might show forth his power, unquote. The word suffer, what does it mean? Literally, means to bear or endure something. And so he, the Lord, endures the pain and the disappointment and the trial along with us. Right. But by his atoning power, he pulls us through it. Right. So he shows forth his power. Also, the Lehi account points out that the Lord does not abandon us during this mortal sojourn in the dreary world or in the middle of the ocean. do, do you think he had his eye on that ship? Absolutely. Uh, and Nephi repeatedly refers to the tender mercies that come to us along the way. I plucked this out of Psalm sixteen fifteen. O Lord, let not the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good, turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. I think this is the sort of thing Nephi was praying. Right. It's comes, beautiful comes out of the Psalms. Could you read for us? First Nephi one
0: verse twenty. Sure. Behold, I, Nephi, will show unto you that the tender mercies of the Lord are all over all those whom he hath chosen because of their faith. To make them mighty, even unto the power of deliverance. Okay, so was Nephi
1: delivered? Yes. And the power that delivered him was the Savior's power. It was. But he endured it, right? He Uh, suffered it. He suffered it, and the Lord suffered it with him. Right, he wasn't alone. Uh, No. Now, let's take it back to the temple, because Adam and Eve are faithful to their covenants. Even though they have to endure... This mortal sojourn through the lone and dreary world, they experience a lot of pain. They do. They, they see one son kill another. It's, it's hard work. Yeah. Okay, to get through this lone and dreary world. But the Lord has his eye on them, and he visits them with his tender mercies. And Lehi learns learns this from his famous dream. Do you remember back in um, chapter 8, 1 Nephi 8, what did... What did uh, Lehi say in verse
0: 8? And after I had traveled for the space of many hours in darkness, I began to pray unto the Lord that he would have mercy on me according to the multitudes of his tender mercies. Right. So
1: after many hours in darkness, which represents the mortal journey, right? You're literally in the dark. I mean, how much of our lives do we spend in the dark? (laughs) Least half. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a good percent. The expression that Lehi uses is um, the multitude of tender mercies. And that's a, a phrase directly out of Psalm 69, verse 16. The expression in Hebrew is rub rachamot, which means the multitude of mercies. Okay. So, how do we get access? How did he get access to those tender mercies? What did he do
0: in that verse? He prayed unto the Lord. Yes.
1: He turned. That's what you have to do. Right. Where else do you turn? Turn to God. You pray to the Lord and pray that he will have mercy according to the multitude of his mercies. Right, right. In other words, I need you. I'm hmm. need. need. I need, I'm in the dark. I need you. That is how we get access to the tender mercies. And the tenderest mercy of all is when he takes you in his arms right. and circles you in the arms of his love, which he always will do. When a- we turn to him.
0: Amen. That's true. Thanks uh, for your time today.
1: And that's uh, this episode. Or next time we will uh, move
0: forward. This has been a great, great session. Thanks, Brick. Thanks.